Word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 20 to 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, O Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. For things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, rest, you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, the passage that we just heard uh, describes Jesus having two very different postures toward two different groups of people. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. In order to do that, uh, I want to start off by um, you doing a thought experiment with me. So imagine right now that you could see into heaven. The clouds would be moved away and you could see God. And imagine that you could see the face of God as if he has a face. We don't really know. But let's just say that you could see the, the face of God and he's looking directly at you right here in your chair this morning. Like he's looking directly at you in your mind. What is the look on his face? Really, think about it. God's looking down at you. What is the look on his face? Now, remember, he, uh, he saw your past, your last week, right? Like, he saw when you yelled at your kids and you kind of freaked out. And he witnessed how you got in that argument with your spouse and that you were stubborn and you didn't give in. Like, remember that. And he remembers that you may have had a, a few too many drinks last week, that one night. And remember that time at work that you needed to kind of stretch the truth? Maybe you would even call it a little lie to, to cover up. Like, he's, he's seen that we've been maybe not so impressive this week. How is God looking at you right now in your seat? Uh, in uh, his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland uh, maybe describes it, well, maybe you would relate to feeling like this. He says, this passage, uh, the one that was just read, is for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty. Those running on fumes, maybe this is you. Those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. Those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up this bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us but suspect we have deeply disappointed Him, who have told others of the love of Christ yet wonder if, as for us, He harbors a mild resentment against us, who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond 
what can be repaired. Now, most of us in this room are pretty aware of our shortcomings. And deep down, deep inside, behind closed doors, we're aware that, that we as individuals, we're thoroughly unimpressive, right? And in the midst of all our struggle and pain, Jesus shows us his heart, how he looks at us. Verse 28, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The idea in the passage, at least the end of this passage, is one of the most life-changing, life-transforming things as I have dwelt and meditated on this passage over the last couple years. And it has just popped to me time and time again, we don't need to be impressive for Jesus. Have you ever grasped that? We don't need to impress him. We also don't need to impress one another right here in this room. That if we have given our lives to Jesus, if he has carried our burden, if we have trusted in him, no matter how unimpressive we were last week, when God looks at you, he smiles down from heaven because you are loved and accepted in Jesus. And he's inviting you into it in deeper so that you can stop running yourself ragged and you can actually find rest in him. And that's great news. But remember, um, remember I said at the beginning that there was two postures. This passage doesn't only have great news, but there's also bad news. And that is this, that Jesus takes an entirely different posture. He looks in an entirely different way um, toward another group of people. It's a little bit more harsh, a little bit more serious, um, and it's a group of people who are just indifferent to Jesus. Maybe they know about him, but they stiff-arm him. Maybe people who go to church because they think it's a good thing to do, but they really don't want to have any real personal connection with Jesus himself. Maybe it's the kind of person who's believed in God all their life just because they thought it was believable. Um, but at the same time, you've never really surrendered your heart to Jesus. This passage, for people who are indifferent to Jesus, actually serves as a warning that God isn't ho-hum about people's ho-hum indifference toward him. He actually takes a position of opposition toward that. It's serious. This is what Jesus says. These are his words, not mine. So there's two different groups Two different responses, two different postures, and, and so we're going to go through this passage in two different pieces and look at it, first half and second half, and the first half is going to be all about condemnation, and the second half is going to be about an invitation. So, condemnation and invitation, and, and, and here's what I, I really hope, that no matter what camp you might fit in this morning, um, is that you would do a deep wrestling with what this passage has to say about Jesus. Because a lot of us come in here and we carry baggage and wounds from earthly relationships and from our dads, and we're projecting that onto God. And we've been taught some wacky theology before. And, and it's always good for us to come back to the scriptures and say, hey, what does God actually say about himself? What does Jesus actually say about himself? And I think if we can grasp what Jesus says about himself, we might be blown away this morning by how amazing he truly is. And so that's the hope, and the invitation is for all. At the end of this, no matter which group you're in, hey, come to him. He's inviting us to come to him because he has rest for us. It's good news. And so 
like I promised, we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to start with condemnation. This is the bad news first, okay? I would ask you if you want the bad news or the good news, but I'm going to follow Jesus' pattern. He gives you the bad news first, and here it is. Ready? So if you have your Bibles, by the way, we're starting in verse 20 of Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 20. It says this, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you'll be exalted to heaven. Or will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> um, if you don't know me, I grew up in a small town in Nebraska. I grew up in, in Atkinson, north central Nebraska. It's a town of about 1,500 people. And by my count, I think in this town of 1,500, there are eight churches, I believe, okay? So you get the sense, even if you've never been there before, that a town with eight churches and only 1,500 people, like, everyone is familiar with God, the Bible is not a foreign concept. Christianity is not a foreign concept. People are familiar with some of the most common Bible verses. It's fairly Christianized in a way. And there was this general sense, and maybe this is true in your hometown or maybe in Omaha as well, there's this general sense, and I don't mean to be um, insensitive by saying this, but there's a general sense that when people passed away or there was a funeral, that, that people would just say, well, now they're they're in a better place, and that's great. They would say, they've, they, you know, they've, they've gone through the pearly gates, and they're up in heaven now. Or, I know that they're now up in heaven looking down on me. You've heard this language before, right? That was just kind of the common belief, because we're just a kind of a, a God-saturated kind of town growing up. But according to Jesus, that confidence that, oh, they're up there now, and they're looking down on me, that might not actually be true for everyone. This church-saturated, God-aware town like Atkinson, Nebraska, it is kind of like the cities he's describing, or the towns that he's describing here. He talks about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and these are the places where most of his ministry was done, according to verse 20. Most of his mighty works, his teaching had been done. And so the first two, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they're... Um, towns right next to Capernaum where some of his disciples were from, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were from there, and you notice that he compares them to these two towns, and I don't expect you to know these places, Tyre and Sidon, but those places come up in the Old Testament um, as places that were radically opposed to God. They come up as places that were radically opposed to the people of God and to Israel, and then he takes Capernaum, and he compares it to Sodom, and I assume maybe a little, a few more of you might know what Sodom is. In the Old Testament, it is like the center of sinfulness. It's the place, if you want immorality, go to Sodom, and it gets destroyed because of the evil. And so he's trying to, to compare these places, but yet actually say, no, those other places that are known, notorious for being evil, those places are better off than these places where, where, where I lived. Jesus lived in Capernaum for three years during his, or for most of the three years while he was doing this ministry. 
He knew people by name. He had neighborly conversations with people. He bought bread from the local baker. Like, he knew everything about them. And yet, what he is saying is, even the most unlikely sinful places have softer hearts than yours. In our day and age, it's kind of like saying, um, you know, Las Vegas, Sin City, the place where all the craziness happens, compared to Atkinson, Nebraska, compared to Omaha, Nebraska, those people in Las Vegas have softer hearts than you. They're ready to believe God before you. In other words, if Jesus would walk down the strip and, and he would present himself in the casinos and, you know, and, and in the bars and in the other places that exist in Las Vegas that I can't say because it's a family Sunday, if he would present himself to them they would believe before someone who's just kind of familiar with God in Atkinson, Nebraska would, or in Omaha, Nebraska. Maybe even people who are donning the doors of some of our churches in this place. Now, if you know my personality, you know that I'm not really the the in-your-face condemning type. Um, But I want you to know the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here. And that is this, that, that it's possible to grow up in a church. It's possible that, that some of you have come in the door today and, um, and you're coming to church um, because maybe you think it's a good idea or maybe your spouse drug you here and you know deep down in your heart that, that you really have no interest in actually being here or actually engaging with what's going on. And maybe um, you believe in God and you believe that he's, maybe generally good, and that if you get into a sticky situation or uh, an emergent situation, that you could pray to him, and that he might be there to listen, but but at the same time, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. There's a sense in which you've never made anything personal. You've never given anything up for him. Jesus is saying, if that's you, you actually don't want to be in that place. Like, that's not a good place to be. To be indifferent and apathetic is in some way worse than being wildly immoral in Las Vegas, okay? Knowing the facts but refusing to respond to him means that, as it stands, your sin and apathy put you in a place of condemnation before God. And my question is, is for those of us, well, for anyone in the room, do we actually believe these words? Do we believe Jesus' words? That a hardworking, kind, moral, conservative Nebraskan who is familiar with Jesus but has never done anything with him is actually worse off than a wildly immoral person in Las Vegas who doesn't know the gospel. Do we actually believe that? Because that's what Jesus says here. That's not something we want to mess around with, Jesus' words. That's what he says, and I'm telling you this, especially if you're in this camp, I'm telling you this because God cares about you, because I care about you, and I don't want you to stay in that place. And so if your ears are slightly perked up because you're like, wow, condemnation, like what, like, what are you talking about? Or maybe it's kind of offensive, the words of Jesus or my own words. Um, I want us to read on and see how he differentiates between the people who um, live in condemn or live under condemnation, and the people who who live in God's favor. Because a lot of times we assume that we have to accomplish something, that we have to achieve something 
But the next verse tells us exactly the opposite. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So Jesus gives us two categories of people. That's the wise and understanding, and then little children. So he's saying, um, the people who don't get me, the people who stand in condemnation are the wise and understanding. In other words, the proud, the people who are self-reliant, the people who think, I don't need anything else, or I can go it on my own. Like, God, it's a great idea, but I don't actually need him. That's not the place that you want to be. And that is uh, opposed to children. He says, you want to be in the place of a child. Those are the people who get me. Those are the people who understand. He's not saying actual children, maybe actual children, but his point is you need to have the posture of a child. That's how you get into the kingdom. That's how you, you find favor in God's eyes. And so the question is, well, wait, what is this children thing? What posture do children actually have? Well, let me... Uh, tell you a a modern day example to maybe give you a little idea. So if you were to come into the Cleaver household, our household, over the last 48 hours, um, I have four kiddos. By the way, if you're new here, I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. And let me just give you a picture of what a children, of a child's posture is like. So two nights ago, in the middle of the night, um, here's a couple examples. In the middle of the night, 4 a.m., I hear from the room across the hall, Dad! come in here. My covers are off. I need you to cover me up. I'm like, really? You can't grab them and, and, and pull them up? Yesterday at lunch, dad, I need ketchup. I can't eat my chicken nuggets without ketchup. First of all, who eats chicken nuggets with ketchup? That's the worst pairing. And, but then yesterday it was nice. Dad, I need you to zip my coat. I can't do it myself. Dad, I can't find my shoes and I want to go outside like my brother over and over, or just yesterday, Dad, I just went poop, and I need you to come help me, you know, help him. I won't say the rest. You can imagine. The question is, what are children like? Children are needy, right? They're unashamed about needing help in every way. This is what Jesus is asking from us to admit we're helpless. That's the standard. That's the thing, to come to him and admit we're helpless. So if you're here and you've never really done anything with Jesus, you're familiar with God, you've never moved, this is an opportunity today, an opportunity to recognize that he actually wants you to come to him and stop playing church. It's an opportunity today. If you've maybe looked at your life and assessed you know what, I actually, I'm actually not doing that well on my own. I actually have a lot of stress and anxiety that I can't get rid of. And I actually can't really find happiness on my own. And I'm not really seeming to find the deep purpose that I was hoping to find in life. This is an opportunity. Jesus is saying, come to me as a child, needy and helpless, and then you can find life where you can find nowhere else. If you are in that place, could you seriously consider giving Jesus a chance, coming to him humbly like a child for the first time? And if you're a committed Christian in the room, um, this posture applies to anyone, right? 
It applies to you too. So I just want to say this. God, according to this, according to Jesus' own words, God is not looking for an award-winning super-Christian. That's not what he's counting on you to be. And so, so Jesus doesn't need you to read through the Bible three times this year. I mean, if you want to, you can, but he doesn't need you to do that. He doesn't need you to volunteer for nine volunteer teams at Providence Church on Sunday morning. He doesn't need you to be smart enough to be able to answer all of the Bible questions that come up at your city group and in your huddle. What he needs is for you to need him. He needs you to be helpless. He wants you to surrender. Have you realized that it's that easy? We don't earn anything. God loves our fumbling, stumbling, bumbling attempts at trying to follow him. He wants us to pray prayers like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or, Jesus, I don't have the strength to make it. Or, or I'm just done. That's where we meet Jesus. That's when he's inviting us to come to him. That's what he desires from his humble hearts, helpless hearts. And this is his posture toward humble hearts. It's a posture of invitation. He's saying, hey, come for more. Come to me. Come and you can find rest. And then he launches in to the next section. It's a section of invitation. It's for people who truly want to follow him. <clears throat> Our second point is invitation. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but this picture that these last three verses paint of Jesus has been one of the most formational things for me in my last handful, four to five years of trying to walk with Jesus. And so I want us to ask ourselves this morning, as Jesus describes his posture and who he truly is, I, wanna, I want us to really ask, do we believe in this Jesus? Is this the Jesus that we believe in? Is this the Jesus that we serve? Like, does this Jesus fit into my theological box? Let me read the first two verses of the three. Verse 28, it says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The first thing I want to point out before I go on is that he invites all, okay? So if you're tracking with the first part, and maybe you even put yourself in that first category, and maybe it was felt a little offensive or abrasive to you, know that this invitation, he says, come to me, what? All, right? Come to me, all who, were labor, who labor and are heavy laden. So there's no formal qualification. All are welcome. The only stipulation is that we have a posture of a child. And so he's asking you this morning, whatever burden you may be carrying, whatever anxiety you have, whatever part of life just seems like too much, he's saying, hey, come to me. Just come to me. With it. And after he invites all to come to him, he starts describing himself. Now, this is where we should start paying attention. If Jesus is going to tell us what he's like, we should probably pay attention if we truly want to know Jesus. We learn who he is at his deepest core. Charles Spurgeon um, 
said that as you read the four Gospels, which are the four accounts of Jesus, you find only one place in all of the Gospels where Jesus describes what his heart is, who he is truly deeply at his core. He only does it one time. Now, if you're a student of the Bible or if you've heard our sermons over the last couple of years, you may have heard us um, talk about the idea of heart. And heart is the concept that, that includes like your mind, the way you think, um, your desires, your will, your emotions. All of that is encapsulated into one word in the Bible called your heart. It's like your control center or your command center for all who you are. And Jesus, here in this passage, tells us what his heart is like, what his control center is like. And notice that he doesn't say, at his heart, he's powerful. At his heart, he doesn't say that he's knowledgeable or omniscient. He doesn't say that he's holy instead of part. He doesn't say that he's perfect at the heart of who he is. He says that he's gentle and lowly. I'm wondering if we truly believe this about Jesus, that he's gentle and lowly. Once again, Ortland, um, from his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes this description of gentle as he compiled the, the New Testament uses of this word. He says this, it's going to be up on the screen. Gentle means meek, humble, that Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural toward him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Then describing the word lowly, Ortland says, he's accessible. For all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simple. Open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. And indeed, it is the only thing that he works with. Here's why this strikes so deep down in my heart. It is because many nights, my head, most nights, my head hits the pillow and I'm just exhausted, okay? Like, I'm exhausted, and as I think back on the day, I often think back and think, wow, like, I could have done better today. Like, I kind of mishandled that one meeting that I had. I think, man, I, I probably could have had better priorities. Like, I, I could have pr probably invested in my kids a little bit better. I could have been more present with my wife, and I just think, man, there... There's a lot of lack. There's a lot of unimpressiveness there. And I'll lay my head down on my pillow and I'll get up the next morning. And I think, man, I got another to-do list to go. And I hope my performance maybe is a little bit better than yesterday. Like there's this weight, right? But these words speak something different to me. This invitation to come to him and this description that he is more approachable, more accessible, that he's not waiting to scold me, but he's inviting me in, is to my heart and my soul, like I feel like I'm treading out in the middle of the ocean when I'm left to my own devices, and it's like a life preserver being thrown to me that I can grasp onto and stay afloat, right? I can't do it on my own. 
I feel that, but this speaks a better word from Jesus. Because Jesus is not pointing a finger at you this morning. He's not crossing his arms and scowling at you this morning. He's not screaming at you. He's gentle and lowly. And he's inviting us in our unimpressive, weary state to come to him. And he's got his arms open wide and he's smiling at us and he's inviting us to come to him and to rest. Isn't that picture of Jesus just good news for our souls this morning? And look at what he says. More good news. I'm going to reread 29 and then read the last verse, 30, um, where he refers to a yoke. And he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, So a yoke isn't usually good news. Okay, so yoke, you probably know, a wooden instrument that lays across the shoulders of two oxen that helps them pull something together. There's also human yokes that they would put on their shoulders, these wooden things that would help them carry loads, but it's something about, it's heavy. It's not easy, it's not light, it's heavy, and it's burdensome. Now, coincidentally, rabbis of the day picked up this terminology of yoke, and they would use it um, to say, so they would take on students who were under their tutelage and um, in order to, to teach them all that they knew and so to become like them. And so it was this grueling process where these students would walk behind these rabbis and they would learn everything that they had to teach. They would try to become exactly like them. And it was this meticulous, hard, burdensome, weighty task of trying to just uh, will yourself to become like someone else, to learn like them. And it was called the rabbi's yoke. It was weighty and burdensome. And Jesus was coming as a new kind of rabbi, as a new teacher. And he's saying, hey, I have a yoke. And I'm asking you to live a specific kind of lifestyle. And I'm asking you to commit to certain things. And it's going to take some work. And it's going to take some discipline. And you're going to have to follow me. But it's not burdensome. It actually brings rest to follow me. My yoke is actually kind of like a non-yoke. When you put my yoke on, it's like you tie helium balloons to the thing, and it actually doesn't weigh you down. It actually lifts you up. It carries you as you go. So very practically, um, this is what I think Jesus is saying. Take the example of, of Bible reading. The yoke of Jesus. He invites us to meditate on his word. Well, if you take Bible reading and you read your Bible to become really smart and intelligent, if you read it just so that you can teach others so you can feel like you know more than other people, that you're accomplished, if you read it just so you can be the expert who has all the theological answers, that's weighty. That's burdensome. That's hard, right? But what if you take Bible reading and you open the Word and come to it so you can meet with Jesus himself, so that you can commune with him, so the most weary, discouraged, even sinful part of your souls can get life from him. That's rest, right? It's two completely different things. Same action, two completely different things. That's what he's inviting us to, his yoke of rest. Take another example. Um, Say that you want to become a leader. You want to become a city group leader in our church, and you want to become a city group leader to 
to earn the kind of the respect and the prestige of a leadership position in the church so people kind of look to you. That's a burden, right? That's a weighty thing to try to earn people's respect, to be looked at as impressive. But think about following Jesus in this. Think about if you're someone who's just hearing the voice of God and you're letting the Spirit reveal his giftedness that he has put inside of you. And, and you consider not what you want to become, but you let Jesus invite you into the serving role that, that he's inviting you into. And you use it not to build yourself up, but to love other people, to serve other people. That's rest. The other way is a burden. This way is rest. And think about just coming to church or coming to city group every week. Think about if you do that to look faithful and to look impressive and to look like you have it all together by being a regular faithful attender. That's a burden. But think about if you come to church to hear the word of God, to soak it up and to grow. Think about if you step into the community of all these people right here in city groups and you live vulnerably and you let um, yourself encourage each or encourage other people and you let other people uh, serve you and encourage you. That life of following Jesus, that's rest. It's two things that look similar on the outside, but it's completely different. You see, when we come to Jesus empty-handed and needy, and when you truly live your faith out, do your spiritual disciplines, live on mission to be with Jesus, the yoke of walking with him actually becomes rest. He's actually inviting us into something much better than lots of us have experienced. And, And here's what I imagine as I think of this passage. Like, what if our church actually lived this way? What if we adopted this way of living? What if we refused to see Jesus as a demanding teacher who's ready to scold us, and we started to see him as gentle and lowly? Think of how that would free us up. Think of how we would want to commune with him. Think of how we would become a community that would long to be with Jesus. And what if What if all of us in this room agreed to stop trying to be impressive and instead take Jesus up on his word, to just come to him, to be like a child, to be needy, to be helpless? Imagine what that would do to the kind of the relational culture here. Imagine how that would boost community, how it would increase vulnerability, how it would increase serving one another and loving one another, and it would take the pressure off from trying to be someone so you could impress the person right next to you, how we could all just be unimpressive sinners that all need Jesus. It would do wonders for the culture of our church. And what if with our spiritual disciplines, with Bible reading, with prayer, with Sabbath, with fasting, with, with meditating, what if um, we did all these things to actually just be with Jesus? They were just, just purely to seek a relationship with him. I think we would become a church that the way the church is supposed to be. We would become a loved people. We would become a free people. We would become an encouraged people. We would become a rest-filled people who know Jesus truly as our friend. Is that not something to strive for? If that's what we desire, man, let's live this out. Let's take Jesus at his invitation and come to him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me pray.
Jesus, we're thankful for your words here in this passage. Um, We're thankful that you are not uh, a dictator. We're thankful um, that you describe yourself and you truly are gentle and lowly. And we're so thankful that we don't have to earn anything to come to you. We pray um, that you would break our hearts this morning, that you would humble us, that we would be able to come to you um, as we truly are. Um, We're in need. We need help. And we pray um, that that we could be a people who who live from that place. We could see you for who you truly are, um, that we could reflect our neediness, that we would um, resist uh, the desire to try to be impressive, to try to white-knuckle it, to try to earn something, uh, earn favor from you, earn favor from other people, and we could truly rest in you. Jesus, we are yours this morning. Um, We pray that you would um, form us around you. Could we be a people who humbly come to you? We pray this in your name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here Father, Son,